What's your view of the church? How significant is the church to your personal walk with God? To how your family operates? To the way you work? To just your life decisions? I suspect that many of us who have been influenced by both the American culture and uh, the revivalist mindset have a tendency to see the church as somewhat incidental to our faith. I mean, for the most part, we like the church, but we also tend to think that we can sort of take it or leave it. But that mindset forgets that the church is not a human idea. It's God's idea. And on this Pentecost Sunday, as we celebrate the earthly birth of the church, it's important for us to contemplate the church. And John 21 gives us an opportunity to do that. After seeing the resurrected Jesus two times, the disciples are just sort of hanging out, wondering what's coming next. They wait for a while. Jesus doesn't show up. And so always impetuous Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples say, okay, sounds like a good idea. We'll go with you. And they head out into their boats. Whether going fishing means that they are waning in their desire to follow Jesus or just becoming a little bit impatient or bored because Jesus isn't doing what, he wants, what they want him to do, we don't know. But it is always amazing to me how Jesus takes our decisions, whether they are what he wants or not, And if we'll let him, brings good out of them. So they go out and they fish all night. And in the morning, a solitary figure, they don't yet know that it's Jesus, calls out to them from the shore. He asks if they've caught anything. They haven't. He says, try another strategy. They do. Bring the fish into the shore. And they can't. There's just too many of them. This isn't the first time that Jesus has helped his disciples with a huge catch of fish. Luke 5 tells us that after teaching from Simon Peter's boat, Jesus says to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets and catch some fish. And Simon says, Master, we've already worked all night and we have caught nothing. But if you say so, okay. And so they let down their, net, their nets, and the, and the catch is so big that the net begins to tear. And they cry for help from their, their friends who are partners who are in another boat, and they load fish into their boat, and they're both boats on the verge of sinking. And when Simon Peter realizes what has happened, he falls to his knees in front of Jesus, and he says, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I, I shouldn't be around you. He was awestruck by the number of fish that they had caught, as were the others with him, his partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they had landed, they left everything and they followed Jesus. Now, the miraculous catch of fish here in John 21 is so large that once again, it threatens the integrity of the net. And they're all looking at each other thinking, we're not going to get this in. This thing's going to rip in half. We've never had a catch of fish like this before. And John John says in verse 11, 
Even with so many fish, the net was not torn. I'm kind of intrigued by those two stories. In the first story from Luke 5, the net begins to tear and the boats begin to sink and Peter tells Jesus, go away from me. In the second story from John 21, there is no hint that the net is even beginning to tear. The boats are not sinking and Peter can't run to Jesus fast enough. And there is something about unterrible nets. I couldn't think of a right word for that, so I just made this one up. Unterrible nets that are descriptive of the kingdom of God. I can't help but think that there's something symbolic here that speaks to our understanding of the kingdom pre-resurrection versus post-resurrection. Luke 5's account in which the nets begin to tear and the boats begin to sink symbolizes the precarious nature of the pre-resurrection kingdom and the evil one's attempt to sabotage the kingdom by sabotaging Jesus. Now, it's not that Jesus has less power or has less authority before his resurrection. It's that prior to the resurrection, Jesus is continually tempted to self-centeredness, to doubt the Father's plan, to fall short of his calling. Now, we kind of go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Really? Well, if those temptations are not real, if it's impossible for Jesus to sin, then Jesus is not really human. And the writer of the Hebrews is lying to us when he describes Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. That Jesus is truly and fully human is at the heart of the incarnation, at the heart of the, of the crucifixion, at the heart of the resurrection, at the heart of everything we believe as Christians. If Jesus is not fully human, then our faith is a fraud. And if Jesus is fully human, then he is continually tempted, just as we are, to go his own way, to start his own kingdom, to turn away from the Father's plan. Which means that the net of the kingdom is continually in jeopardy of being torn. But once Jesus is raised from the dead, the evil one no longer has any power to tempt him. The kingdom of God and of his Christ is secure. The net that began to tear before now holds firm and fast. There's no longer any threat of it being in jeopardy. It is Unterrible. Even with all of the fish flopping around in it, there's not even the slightest hint that it's in any way compromised. And the post resurrection Jesus makes the church secure. The kingdom will not fail because, in the power of the resurrected Christ, it stands firm. No matter how much positive or negative pressure may push against it. And there is always pressure against the church. Sometimes the pressure on Christ's church is from the outside. The book of Acts tells us how Peter and John are arrested repeatedly. Acts 7 tells us about Stephen who is stoned to death because of his faith in Christ. When Paul and his companions make their journeys across Asia Minor and into Europe... 
They are vilified and arrested and tortured and beaten. And some of them are murdered. History books relate many stories of God's people being burned at the stake, stretched on the rack, chained in stocks, murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. Many times the church has gone underground and it seems that there is little chance that the church will ever survive. And yet it does. The net isn't torn. Herod can't tear it. Nero can't tear it. Saladin can't tear it. Hitler can't tear it. Stalin can't tear it. Mao can't tear it. Idi Amin can't tear it. Osama bin Laden can't tear it. It is Christ's church. And even though the opposition is great, the resurrected Christ keeps his church secure. But often the pressure on the net, on the church, the kingdom, is as much from the inside as it is from the outside. We felt this a couple of weeks ago as a group of Christians proclaimed that May 21st was the day that the world was going to end and Christ was going to return. I was amazed at how much publicity that proclamation, that prophecy received. On that day... A parishioner wrote me, uh, sent me a note with some musings about their thoughts related to, to all of the goings on of this prediction. And even as he worked hard to find some redemptive, something redemptive in it for his own life, he lamented the effect of it not happening. People will feel, feel despair tomorrow. Children will be very confused. Some who believed in this prediction will fall away from Christ entirely. And it doesn't take into account the, all of the, the, the ridicule from people outside the church. And he said, this is not a time for mocking. This is a time to weep. And then knowing that this sermon was in the works, he added, but the net was not torn. Sometimes the pressure on the net, the greatest threat, is not negative events, but positive events. It's not the potential for failure, it's the potential for success. After the fish have been brought in and they've all eaten, Jesus, in my mind, takes a little walk with Peter. And he has a conversation with him that centers around the question, Peter, do you love me more than these? We stopped our reading just before that. And there's a lot of discussion about what exactly is the identity of these that Jesus describes. Scholars attempt to think through that, and there are many theories. And as I was thinking through this, the thought struck me, what if it's the fish? What if it's this net full of fish? Peter, do you love me more than you love catching fish? And the greater question, do you love me more than you are going to love catching people? More than you're going to love bringing people into the kingdom? Now, I'm not much of a fisherman primarily because I just find it hard to have the patience to sit in a boat and wait for the very inconsiderate fish to take hold of my hook. I get bored pretty easily with it. My grandfather was an avid fisherman, and when we would go on vacations, he would love to take us kids out in the boat. And I love being with my grandfather, but I have to tell you, I got bored pretty quickly uh, when the fish weren't biting. When we lived in Wisconsin, the... um, 
the lake on which we lived, you know, it froze every summer in northern Wisconsin. Or anyway, not in the summer, in the winter. Actually, there were days you thought it was going to freeze in the summer. You think it's bad here. Wait till you live up there. And, and all across the lake, it was just dotted with these little shanties where, you know, the guys would go out and ice fish. And I went with the guys, I went ice fishing with the guys from our church once. Now I was bored and freezing to death. I have never yet quite been able to wrap my mind around people who want to do that. But I think it's the fellowship that really makes it worthwhile. So I I haven't never, that's not really my thing. But I do love to fish when the fish are biting. That is really fun. When you throw in your line and you don't take very long and the fish grab hold. It doesn't matter how big the fish are. You're just catching something, right? My brother-in-law took some of us fishing. My, my, my other brother-in-law, my dad and I, on Smith Mountain Lake a few years ago. And uh, my dad said I could use this picture only if I explained to you that he caught the very biggest fish there in the middle. He wanted me to make sure that was clear to you. But that was an awesome morning. You know, we're out catching these. We threw back a lot of fish that were just smaller than this. It was amazing. You just want to keep going. And it reminded me once again that Catching fish can be so exhilarating, even intoxicating. And so is helping people open their hearts to Christ. It is an awesome thing to be able to help people understand that Christ loves them. And to watch them embrace that. And in a few days, Peter is going to stand up in Jerusalem and he's going to preach. And 3,000 people are going to open their hearts to Christ. 3,000 people. And that gets into your blood. That gets into your system. And if you aren't careful, you can begin to seek not so much the presence of Christ or the transformative power in people's lives about Christ, but the, the exhilaration of the moment of being with those people. And if we're not careful, subtly, it becomes more about us than about him. It becomes more about success than about discipleship. I have a feeling this might be one of the reasons why John mentions that the disciples catch 153 fish. Now, on the one hand, David James Duncan, in his book, The River, is probably right that it seems pretty odd, maybe even inane, for the disciples who, after all that they've witnessed with the crucifixion, the resurrection, and that this is only the third time they have been with Jesus since the resurrection, that the disciples would actually take the time to count the fish. Surely they got more important things to do than that, right? But when you stop and think about it, that's what fishermen do. I mean, you, especially professional fishermen, you count the fish because that's how you get paid. And we do the same things, don't we? I mean, we, we have a sort of a routine that our mind quickly runs into about the things that we typically do every day, even when we come to worship. So when I'm sitting out in worship, my tendency is to analyze the sermon. Maybe yours is to draw pictures, or maybe it's to analyze the grammar, or maybe it's to think about the DNA in one of the plants. I don't know. We had some life. There they are over there, life plants. But we, it's a tendency that we have to just do that. And so I kind of understand why they would count the fish. What I'm not quite sure about is why John would tell us that. I mean, you, you know, you, you only have so much space here. Why include the number? And scholars have been trying to figure that out for centuries. 
And they've come up with a number of theories. One theory is that it's just trying to help us see this is a huge catch. Far more than any of them would have ever gotten before. Others talk about the number 153 as having mathematical properties to symbolize events and people. And I was trying to read through that. And I have to tell you, it is an intricate system of trying to figure out all those numbers. For other people, it's connected to numerology. You know, where the, the letters in the alphabet connect to numbers. And that was a common thing. In fact, the best example of that probably is that Nero Caesar's name, written in Hebrew letters, comes out based on numerology as 666. And there are some people, St. Jerome being one of them, who believed that there were 150 species of fish at the time that they lived. And that there was one of these fish... Each one of each of those fish inside the net. And that was significant because it symbolized for them the gospel reaching every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation. Someone mentioned to me recently that the idea of disciples taking the gospel into all the world isn't just a geographical command. Go to Zambia, go to China, go to Norway, go to Estonia. But it's into every element of our world and our lives, into every discipline, into every part of life, every profession, every social class, every encounter, every relationship, everything. And I don't know if this is exactly what John intends for us to understand, but I like that idea that the kingdom of God is big enough and strong enough for everyone who opens their life to Jesus. That is certainly the message of the Old Testament. It's not just about Israel, but it's about Israel being the witness to all the world. That is certainly the message of Jesus and of Paul. It's the message that God teaches Peter. It's the message of Revelation. Everyone who opens their heart to Jesus becomes a part of the kingdom. Not a lesser part of the kingdom, not a weaker part of the kingdom, not a probationary member of the kingdom. The kingdom. And with so many different people and so many different perspectives in the kingdom, it puts a lot of pressure and weight on the net. And we have to decide how we're going to respond to that. Sometimes we think, well, there's just too many fish in here. Sometimes we think, hey, I'm not getting my own way. Sometimes we think, wait a second, this is just too much. I believe our calling as, as fish in the net is the same calling that, Je- that Jesus gives to Peter. Feed my sheep. Serve, love, tend, care, teach. Don't worry about the, about the net. I've got that safe. You just go feed my sheep. Take care of each other. And so we throw out the net and we hold the net and we build relationships and we obey and we ask God where he's working so we can join him. We are salt and light and we bring the fish to Jesus because they're his, not ours. And we minister to one another and we feed Christ's sheep, all of his sheep, and especially the sheep that are most hungry and most needy and most vulnerable. As Jesus tells us again and again and again. The last two Sundays, I helped with Children's Church. And uh, I also helped with the uh, third grade Sunday school class last week. That's not what I normally do on Sunday mornings, as many of you are aware. But it was awesome. 
I, I loved being with those little children and teaching them and interacting with them and playing with them. It, it was amazing. And in the midst of all that, I couldn't help but, but think about how Mark tells us the story of people bringing little children to Jesus and how the disciples said, get those kids away from here. They're unimportant. They're insignificant. Jesus doesn't have time for them. And Jesus rebukes them. One of the harshest words that we ever hear Jesus saying. And he says, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. And I suspect that many of us will have the opportunity to do something like that with children. Who need to know and to learn about what it means to be a follower of Christ. It may mean just building relationships with each other and engaging our lives with each other, supporting each other when we have needs, caring for each other, being a listening ear, whatever it takes to feed the sheep, to tend the sheep, to love each other, to be the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. All of these fish represent the people who respond to the disciples' message about Jesus. And it contains all the people who make up the church. And some are good, some are selfish, some are messed up, some are still dealing with some stuff. And it can be overwhelming sometimes. And how do you deal with 3,000 converts in one day? How do you disciple them? How do you train them? How How do you keep control of them? You can almost hear the disciples saying, wow, this is great, but it's too much. And Jesus says, it's my net, my church. I've got it. You just rely on me, and I'll give you everything you need to handle this. It's imperative we remember the church is not ours, it's his. Pentecost is not just about the birth of the church. It's also about the Holy Spirit being revealed in a new way. The day of Pentecost is not a day to celebrate human ingenuity. It's a day to celebrate the unlimited power of the Holy Spirit in and through his people. Power that cannot be controlled, cannot be fully explained, cannot be put into a human box. Power that keeps the net from tearing no matter what. If the kingdom is safe, we don't have to despair. We can trust that despite what things look like, despite the problems and the successes that may worry us, despite the opposition and its seeming victories, and despite our successes and potential problems, we know it's in Christ's hands. And it's going to be okay. The Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, is Christ's gift for us to experience the power of the net that is unterrible and of our connection together as his people. We're going to take communion this morning by the mode of intinction. It means to dip in. And you'll come to the front and walk up and tear a piece of bread and dip in the cup and eat it. And one of the things that I like about about intinction is that we can watch each other take communion. We can see each other. We're also going to sing together as we receive communion together. And we are forced to experience this moment of communion as more than just me and Jesus, but as all of us together 
in Christ's unterrible kingdom of power and of grace. Holy Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness to us. Father, we thank you for the church. We pray, Father, that you will help us today to get a a fuller glimpse, a fuller understanding of your church. Father, we pray that your blessing would rest upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. We pray that it will be food for our souls and that as we receive together, we will be bonded more and more to each other in Christ. And give us grace to live in the security of your kingdom through Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.